Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter of 1 Peter, and I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. On account of his vast mercy, he has given us new birth. You have been born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish, an inheritance that is presently kept safe in heaven for you. Through his faithfulness, you are guarded by God's power so that you can receive the salvation he is ready to reveal at the last time. You now rejoice in this hope, even if it is necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Your faith is more valuable than gold, which is destroyed even though itself is tested by fire. Your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Christ is revealed. Although you have never seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you trust in him and so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. You are receiving the goal of your faith, your salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we try to talk about the Christian year every now and again in this church. And since that is the case, I'm going to wish you all a happy Easter, because in the church and in the Christian calendar, Easter is not one Sunday. Easter is seven Sundays. So we are now in the midst of the season of Easter, the season of resurrection. Uh, For those of you who need a visual, this is the church calendar, and that red dot, you are here. The first, or second, excuse me, Sunday in Easter. If you're interested in the church calendar, just as an aside, um, there is one in the back for this year, and you can look at it more in depth. But this is an easy one. Easter is a season. It lasts seven weeks in between Resurrection Sunday, the first Sunday of Easter that we celebrated last week, and goes on for seven weeks until we hit Pentecost, which is another very exciting holiday in the Christian church. Sorry, uh, that's an aside. I'll get back on track. But we are here. And so we're going to hear over the next six weeks Easter stuff. We're going to talk about Easter, and we're going to continue to celebrate Easter because, quite frankly, in my book and in the church's book, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something too good just to limit to one Sunday. In fact, in, in Christian tradition, and, and a lot of the early church writers said something to the effect of every Sunday is a mini Easter, for we celebrate every Sunday the resurrection, the life that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. But over the next six weeks, we're going to be kind of entering into this Easter. It's a sermon series, so to speak. Um, and it's called So What? So over the next week, seven weeks, six weeks now, we're going to be discussing the so what of the resurrection. Now, last week, we, we talked about resurrection. Last week, the, the, the world celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and, and what a glorious thing that is and what it does for us and, and, and who it is that, that we celebrate and all this wonderful stuff. And that is awesome and good. Christ is risen from the dead and everything is different and we celebrate that. But there is a question that remains, to what end? Right? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and that is good and great news. That is the foundation of our faith. But we should ask the question, but what does that mean for us? Now, not just the benefits, although there are benefits of Christ's resurrection, right? 
Christ is raised from the dead. Christ died for our sins so that we might have life. That is the gospel. We have salvation in Christ. But what does this look like? How does this work out in our lives? How does this work out in the church? And so as I began studying and thinking about what we're going to do, I found, I saw these texts from 1 Peter, a letter written from the Apostle Peter to the early church. And as I was reading through the book, I started saying, you know what? Peter talks a lot about, about what this resurrection means for us, not just existentially, things like salvation, but how does it look in our lives as we work out our faith in Christ? And so that's where we're going to be the next six weeks now, five weeks, if you don't count today. We're going to be talking about the so what of salvation. What does the resurrection mean for us? Or another way to put it is how then should we live? In In a world where resurrection is, where Christ is risen from the dead, how then should we live in response as people of God to that? What does it mean for us? What does it change? So since we're going to be in 1 Peter, a little bit of background and context might be helpful as we are going through this letter. A little bit about the the occasion and the churches to whom Peter is writing. So first of all, authorship, right? I, I won't get into this because authorship of New Testament stuff is, it can be complex. Let's just put it that way. We don't really know exactly who wrote 1 Peter, It's ascribed to 1 Peter, and yet there's some things that say, is it really the Apostle Peter? We don't know, ultimately. Now, it's got his name on it, and the people in the first century didn't care much about authorship. I'm going to be honest with you. They were willing to put names on things because it was in the tradition of so-and-so. And And that was okay with them, and that's okay with us. Now, for lack of of any other thing to say, I'm going to say it's written by Peter because it is in the spirit of Peter. It is good. It has got the gospel at the center. And so we're going to say it's written by Peter because we don't know any better. We don't know any different. So I'm going to be referring to this as written by Peter. And we can trust that this is scripture, divinely inspired, given to the church that we might learn and grow, etc., etc. Okay, authorship. Next is, to whom is this written? Now, in the first uh, couple verses of, of 1 Peter, uh, he, he talks about who this is written to. And it's not written like some of his other works to, um, to a specific church. So you might be familiar with the, you know, the verse, books of First and Second Thessalonians, First and 2 you know, Timothy, where they have specific churches or specific people to whom they are written. This particular book is written to a group of churches in what we now call Asia Minor. Now, it's circled up there on, on that kind of pixelated map that I did not download a good enough image. But anyway, you might see up to the left-hand side, there's Italy over there. And then we go into kind of where Greece is. And then Asia Minor, kind of all that red circle, is is churches in that area, in those regions to whom Peter is writing this. So exactly how that worked, we don't know. He might have written multiple copies and it been distributed, or I think more likely based on the cost of what it cost to actually write a letter back then. Uh, Peter sent it and it was passed around to different churches. Perhaps a single person went to all these churches and read the letter to them, or they just kind of sent it back and forth to one another and, and got it. But it's, it's written to these churches in this particular area. Now, when Peter writes the letter and introduces the letter, he says it is written to the exiles in the diaspora, or the exiles who are dispersed, okay? A little bit of context is helpful for that. So first of all, he 
he, he calls them exiles, which is an interesting sort of terminology to use. We don't know exactly who the people were in these churches. They, some might have been Jews, some may not have been Jews, but all of them ascribed and all of them followed the crucified and risen Christ. And so they were out of step with the context of the world around them. They, 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 they couldn't participate in the same sorts of ways in the culture and in the worship of the world around them. And so they were kind of outside. They were on the outside, right? Um, some of them very well may have been Jews. But, but this idea that he, he works with is that these are people who are strangers in a strange land. They are outsiders. They are on the margins. They, they, they are not the, the powerful, the rich of the day. They, they are kind of outside. And in the Roman Empire, especially, if you weren't a citizen of the Roman Empire, you had very, very few rights in the empire. Which means that, like happened in Rome, the Caesar or rulers could say, we don't want X people in this city. And they would be expelled and moved on. We know that Priscilla and Aquila, who, to whom Paul writes one of his letters, or at least they're one of the addressees, are exiled from Rome for that very reason. They were told, you can no longer be here. And since they were, I believe they were Jewish, they were expelled. They were forced to leave. You cannot do this here. Be gone. They had no rights. I mean, imagine what that would be like if, if at any moment the, the government around you could just say, I'm sorry, your house is no longer your house because of who you worship. That's what they were working with here. That's the kind of things that were going on. And the dispersion, he says, in the diaspora, that's a term basically when, when, when people are scattered. So when the Jews were kicked out of, out of Jerusalem and out of the Holy Land, it was called the diaspora. They went into the dispersion of the rest of the world. They were a people basically who were on the outs, exiles. And all that came along with being exiled, people on the move people who didn't have a firm rooting, people who didn't get to be in the places where perhaps their families were or perhaps their roots were. They were dispersed in the world. And I'm spending some time on this because this is an important theme that comes up over and over and over in the letter of 1 Peter. As he talks about things like inheritance, he talks about things like, like having something that cannot be taken away, cannot be shaken, cannot be moved. And for a people who, who are unrooted, it's good news. So this is the context into which Peter writes his letter, the context of, of a Roman world where Rome was the law. And if you weren't kind of in the inner circle, a citizen of Rome, you had very few rights. If you were of the wrong religion, you had very few rights. If you did not toe the party line within Roman culture, you did not have rights, if you did not worship what Rome worshipped and what they said you should worship, you did not have rights. You were a people without a land, without a home. And so that's the context into which Peter is writing this letter. And that's the context that, that the folks who are hearing what Peter is writing are, are living day in and day out, living in this tension of not having a home, not having a home base, being strangers in a strange land. And so Peter writes to them, and, and he sort of opens up just positive and wonderful and, and, and begins his letter by telling them one of the main benefits of the salvation that they have, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, on account of God's vast mercy, he has given us new birth. You have born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Now, if you've been around this church for a while and you've attended somewhat regularly, I know some of you haven't, so that's okay, but, but you might remember earlier on in Lent, we talked about Nicodemus who visited Jesus. And you may or may not be familiar with the story, but I'll, I'll tell it again in brief. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a, a really high, um, smart guy who was in the kind of the religious top creme of the crop in his day, comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, we know you're a teacher. And then Jesus begins to talk to him about being born again and being born anew. And Nicodemus gets confused. And he says, how can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Which is a valid question. But Jesus says, right, you must be born of the water and the spirit. You must be born anew if you want to see the kingdom of God. And so what, what Peter is drawing on is that kind of that language and that experience and that understanding that, that one of the things that, that Jesus Christ brings about in his death and in his resurrection is in people giving them the ability to be born again, to have new life. But it's a life of a different kind, right? It's not entering into the mother's womb a second time. That's odd and a difficult thing to think about and something we'd probably rather not think about. But, but Jesus says you are born again. And, and Peter says you are born again, not, not from something perishable, but something imperishable. And you are born anew into a living hope. Right? So, so, so we, we come to understand that, that, that death even itself is not the end, the final note for us. Right? We have a living hope. There is not only hope in this life, but life beyond life. And the church has come to understand that is what we receive in baptism or what we experience in baptism or what we give testimony to in baptism. Right? The symbolism of being dunked in the water is death. And the symbolism of being coming out of the water is new life in Christ. Paul says, if we have been united with him in his death through our baptism so too we will be united with him in resurrection hope. So when we talk about A number one, what, what benefit, what does the death and resurrection of Christ do for us? Well, the first and primary thing is in Christ, through his death and resurrection, we can be and are born anew. Paul will say, the old has gone, behold, all things have been made new. And so Peter taps into this idea and Peter taps into this understanding that we are born anew. And then he kind of weaves it in and, and reminds us that being born anew means we are also born into an inheritance, right? So, so if we were born into our earthly families the first time, we are born anew into the family and into the community of Christ, the family of God. We receive in our baptism a new family. And God is our father. Christ is our brother. Think about that again for, for folks who are in exile. Think about this perhaps for folks who have made decisions for Jesus, who have said, we will follow the crucified and risen Christ. Christ is our king and Caesar is not. Think about it for these people who, who that confession very well may have put them on the outs with their families. Some have lost families. Because of this, some have been pushed out of their communities because of that confession. They are people who are unrooted or who have been unrooted from their families in many instances. And Peter comes in and says, guess what? You are born anew in Christ. You have, you have this living hope in Christ. You have been given a new family for God is your father. 
you are born anew into his family. And then he says, you have a pure and enduring inheritance that cannot perish. A true and enduring inheritance that cannot perish. Again, think about what that means. If you're a person who is, let's say, kicked out of where you lived, where Rome can say, uh, yeah, that's mine, not yours. Where thieves can steal or moth and rust can destroy if we're to pick up on the words of Jesus, right? Peter says, guess what? You have been given an inheritance that cannot be shaken, that cannot be moved, that is held for you essentially in heaven. It is protected and guarded by God. This is the life that God has given we're part of a family, but we've also, in, in this family, in, in a way of speaking, been given keys to the kingdom, right? Right, right? So, so, so we're not just saved by God. Now, that's huge, right? Salvation is huge. We have been saved from sin and death by God. If that was not enough, we have been adopted into the family of God. Not just as slaves, not just as servants, but as sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom of God. That moves me in ways that I cannot even begin to explain. We have an inheritance, and no one can take it away. We have an inheritance, and no matter what, what anything on the outside says, We are told that our lives are hidden in Christ in God. And Christ guards our lives. Now, this does not dismiss suffering. This does not say things will be Pollyanna and perfect in our lives. Raise your hand if your life has been perfect. We have struggled, we have pain, things go wrong. There is sickness. And, and yes, there is, there is even death. Even for those in Christ, there is death in this life. But part of what it means to be an inheritor of the hope that we have been given is this confession that this life is not all there is. I hope you paid attention when we sang the song. What is our hope in life and in death? Christ alone, Christ alone. It is one thing to have hope for this life, and we have in Christ hope for this life. But we also have hope in and through death that we are Christ forevermore. So when we ask that question, so what? What really does the death and resurrection of Christ do? It changes everything. For us. We're given a new family. I'll grant you, sometimes we don't always agree with one another in our family. But we are adopted into the family of God. And we're given an inheritance that cannot be taken, cannot be shaken, and cannot be moved. Government can't take it. Thieves can't take it. You can't leave it in the security bin at the airport, right? You've been given an inheritance that cannot 
be shaken. That is guaranteed. I mean, if there is a place where things are guaranteed and we should know that they're secure, well, surely in heaven with God is probably a good place for it to be. That is where your inheritance of life in Christ is held and is hid. However, in this life, we are told we will have trouble. Jesus said it to his disciples once or twice. He basically said to them that if you follow me, not me, but him, right? If you follow Jesus, you'll be going against lots of things. You'll often find yourself on the outsides of culture, on the outsides of of the popular opinion, on the outside of lots of different things. You'll find that you are having to go against the flow. That, That there's nobody you totally agree with outside, right? That, that no political party can encompass your beliefs, that, that, no, that no particular movement can accompany your beliefs because in Christ, we don't, we don't follow a donkey and we don't follow a lamb. Why, or I mean, excuse me, we don't follow a, an elephant. We follow a lamb. We follow Jesus and Christ alone. And that means that we follow him in places that put us at odds with people around us. We do things that look strange. Most of our friends and family and loved ones who don't go to church probably don't celebrate things like communion. It looks strange. Not many places do people get together and sing songs like we do. I mean, Broadway shows, I know people sing along, but where else? Very few places. We do some strange things in the church. The way we worship and how we worship and that we worship is strange oftentimes to the culture around us because we follow the crucified and risen Messiah and we have submitted ourselves to him and to him alone. It puts us at odds with people who value certain things because we value Christ and Christ alone. It puts us at odds sometimes with a culture that says make all you can all the time. Right? That to die with the most toys means winning. Right, It puts us at odds with that culture. It puts us at odds with a culture that says, whatever you want to do is okay. As long as it feels good, do it. Following Christ puts us at odds with that and forces us to ask the question, it may feel good, but is it good? It may feel good, but is it God? It puts us at odds with the people around us. And sometimes this can just mean that people look aside at us and go, those people are weird. I'm weird anyway, so it doesn't bother me so much. But, but, but sometimes it puts us at odd and people look at us and they, they're weird. They act weird. They, they sing songs and they eat bread and take a shot of grape juice. What's that all about? Because it looks strange. Sometimes it's just that. And most of the time that we can deal with. Sometimes it causes us to have conflict with people because we say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. Because this is destructive to my life and to the life of humanity and our common humanity. This is what what God says we should not do. And, And God doesn't tell us we shouldn't do something just because God wants to tell us not to do stuff, but because it's not good for us. It may feel good, but that doesn't make it good. We are oftentimes at odds 
with the world and the culture around us and find ourselves like exiles. I don't fit in this party, but I don't fit in that party either. I don't fit with this group, but I don't fit with that group either. Because we have made a common confession that we follow Christ alone. And Peter acknowledges this, right? He says, you rejoice in this hope in verse 6, even if it is necessary for you to be distressed for a short time by various trials. Now, I tend to like this particular translation that we read today. In this one, I don't, because it's kind of like, oh, various trials, right? Like, basically, other translations say, you will have suffering. We understand that you might have suffering for a time because of your confession, right? We, we want it to be like, we're confessing what is right and what is good. We follow Jesus, so, so why should things go bad? But we know that we're out of step. And so Peter says, you will have suffering. You may have suffering for a time. And he says that suffering may test your faith. And he even goes as far as telling the people that your faith... <laughs> Though your inheritance is imperishable, faith is fragile and can be shaken. He acknowledges that. I love that about Peter. He's like, I get it. But he reminds again that this refines our faith and reminds us what is truly important to us. He says, you will have trouble. You will even suffer sometimes. This may happen as a result of your confession of Jesus Christ. And because of this very reason, you are out of step with the people around you sometimes. They may laugh at you or they may persecute you. Some of the people to whom Peter is writing in these churches, though there has not been widespread kind of empire-wide persecution yet, at least based on what we know about the first Peter and the time it was written, there were times and there were places where people were being killed, where people were being persecuted, where they were being thrown out, where they would be beaten because of their confession of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, Christians in the, in the empire were often called atheists because they only worshiped one God and refused to worship the others. There were some things which you could not do in civic life because you were not willing to offer a sacrifice to some other God. There is a letter written from, um, from an emperor to one of his prefects about this very question. There are, there are Christians in this community that are refusing to offer sacrifice to the emperor, which was required for everybody in the empire. They were unwilling to do that. And so the guy named Pliny writes to the emperor Trajan. He says, what should I do with these crazy people? They refuse to offer honor to Caesar, to Rome. And Trajan writes back and he says, yeah, that's a problem. What happens when people start not doing what we tell them to do? He says, he says, here's what I'm going to tell you. Give an opportunity to recant, to offer sacrifice to the Caesar. But if they don't, you can kill them. It was a real problem, persecution in the early church. Because following Jesus required stepping out of other things. I'm going to follow Jesus. 
Christ alone. And if I'm following Christ alone, I cannot offer a sacrifice to Artemis or to Demeter or or to Roma or to the Caesar. For we worship Christ and Christ alone. So these people were not immune to suffering, nor were they unfamiliar with it. But Peter reminds them that their suffering does not mean that God is displeased. Their suffering does not mean that they are failing. In fact, he says, suffering will refine your faith. And your genuine faith, he says, will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Christ is revealed. These ways of following Jesus that we are called to, out of step, often, in fact, many times with our culture, feels like struggle, and sometimes it really is. For some people, it really has been. Death, persecution. But Peter says, not it's worth it. I don't think that's what Peter's saying. I think that's a weird way to put it. Peter is saying, but guess what? That will not and cannot shake what you have in Christ. None of that will result in Christ abandoning you or being left behind. In fact, holding on to your faith ensures and results in praise, glory, and honor for you when Christ is revealed. I don't think that praise and honor comes from other people. I don't think that's what we're searching for. I think, and I am convinced, and I think Peter agrees with me. I agree with Peter. Let's go that way. Is that the praise, honor, and glory comes from God. And if it is for Christ alone whom we live, if it is for God alone whom we live, then the only person's praise and glory that we really care about at the end of the day, or that really matters at the end of the day is God's. At the end of the day, who I want to be pleased with me is God. I'd like to say I live that all the time. I'd like to say what you all think about me never affects me. I'd be lying if I said that was the case. It does, and I care what people say about me. But as we're sitting here in worship this morning and, and as we're worshiping any time, I think God allows me to focus and say and ask me the question, who really, who really are you living for? And I have to say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. At the end of the day, what I want to hear is God say to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. What I want as a leader, as a pastor of this church, is that when we come together before Christ, he says, well done, good and faithful servants. I'm not in this alone. I'm part of a family. You're not in this alone. You're part of a family. And we want to get there. And quite frankly, I want to get there together. I don't want to go on alone.
Sorry, that was sort of a tangent. I just feel, <laughs> felt that this morning. But I think this is what Peter is getting at. And, and remember, he's not writing this just to one person. He's writing this to a group of churches saying, guess what? We're going together. Christ is bringing us there. We live for the praise of his glory. Not even our own. So, your suffering is not to negate your faith. Your suffering builds your faith. For your faithfulness in suffering proves and shows and declares to the world in whom your hope is found. In Christ alone, hidden with Christ in God. And then Peter goes on to say that, that he is, he, it's like he's proud of, of these churches. He's saying, guess what? Even though you don't see him now, you love him. Right? Your faith is so strong that, that you love someone you have never seen. Now, if it is indeed the apostle Peter writing this, Peter has seen Jesus. Peter spent time with Jesus. Peter denied Jesus and felt firsthand what it was for Jesus to say, it's okay, I forgive you. You are my disciple, feed my sheep. Peter knows that. He's experienced it. And so when Peter says, you love him, but you haven't even seen him, he wants to encourage his churches and saying, guess what? You have placed your hope in the one thing where hope is secure. And he's giving him kudos because they have not ever even seen directly, like Peter has anyway, Jesus. You don't see him, but you trust in him. And so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. What I love about this, he ends this particular text with this phrase. You are receiving the goal of your faith, which is salvation. I want to be clear, salvation, going to heaven when we die, awesome. Right? Amazing gift. But I think the witness of the New Testament and the witness at least of, of the apostles is, guess what? <laughs> that begins now. You are receiving, not you will receive, you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is salvation. Another way to put this is eternal life begins now. It, it's true. Following Jesus puts us sometimes at odds with people around us. It's just a fact. It doesn't mean we need to punch them in the face. It just means that we, we are out of step many times because we follow something other than sort of just the whims of the world. And sometimes even that brings suffering. But this is what it is. This is a result of the resurrection. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus means we follow someone who is out of step with the world. I mean, if anyone is out of step with, cre with all the world as it is, right? Everyone else has died and stayed dead. Except for a couple people that Jesus raised to life. And let's get that. Jesus is so out of step with the world around him that he says, yeah, death's not a thing for me. Right? Everything's different. And we follow him in the ways that he goes. Our world uses death as threat, right? Isn't that what war is? The threat of violence is the threat of death. We say, 
yeah, I don't want to experience it, but that's not the end for us. Our hope is hidden in something greater. We have an inheritance that cannot be shaken, that cannot be removed, and you cannot negate it even if you kill me. And that makes the people of God, at least it has traditionally, dangerous. Not because we kill for our, the sake of our religion, but because we are willing to die for the sake of the one who died for us. For even in our death is testimony to the hope that we have in Christ. So what about the resurrection? Well, if Christ has been raised from the dead, everything is different. We are different. We follow a different way and a different path. And we pursue it. Well, I'm going to say this religiously. We pursue it as if our life depends on it. Now, to be clear, our life doesn't depend on doing the right things, but our, our life depends on following the right person. And that is Jesus. And this may bring trouble. And this may bring trial. But I think one of the messages of this particular story is daylight is coming. Daylight is coming. We sing sometimes around here, right? Though the sorrow may last through the night, his joy comes in the morning. I mean, that's a song we sing. It's also scripture. His joy comes in the morning. We say on Friday night, right? Sunday's coming. Every Sunday is a declaration that no matter how dark things get, Daylight is coming. Christ will be revealed. And Christ will call us home. And so no matter what we go through, the high times, and there are some wonderful, great times we have as human beings. And in the low times, and I know there are those times, we cling to the hope, to the rock of our salvation that is Jesus Christ, which allows people like Paul to say, I rejoice even in my affliction. Paul doesn't rejoice because of his affliction. He says, I am able to rejoice even in it. For we have an inheritance that is unshakable, that is imperishable, and that is eternal. Christ has been raised. Everything is different. You have an eternal hope. As we close today, I wanna it's gonna sing a final song. <clears throat> and this is a song that, that may not be real familiar to, to most or many of you. It's a song that I've run across just in the last couple months, Sheldon. Uh, it, it's a song that I started listening to one of the one of the artists who we talked about in our sound doctrine series. A song, and it's just blown me away. And it's just a reminder for me where our hope is. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We have an eternal hope in him because Christ was willing to endure death for our sake and be raised to new life 
And because this is true, we can have life in him. As we cling to the rock of our salvation, that is Jesus Christ. As we follow in his steps, where we go where he goes and follow where he leads. But he gives us life and he gives us hope. An inheritance that cannot be taken away.